Amen. All right, the chapter we're going to do today is Genesis 43. Joseph secretly calls his brothers to repentance. Last week in chapter 41, we read about how Joseph's brothers went down to Egypt um, seeking food. And while they were there, they ran into Joseph and Joseph disguised himself so they, so they didn't know who he was and he accused them of being spies. And he had a reason for accusing them of being spies. He, kinda, he did it because he wanted to strategically uh, get some information from them as well as try to uh, pry into their conscience to remember the secret sin that they had committed against him 20 years ago. In this chapter, we're going to see whether or not this works. We're going to see what happens. We're going to see how the brothers react to this accusation, how they react to all the trials and tribulations that Joseph is going to strategically put them through. So let's begin reading Genesis chapter 43, verse 1, and it says, And the famine was sore in the land, and it came to pass when they had eaten up the corn which they had brought up out of Egypt, their father said unto them, Go again, buy us a little food. And Judah spake unto him, saying, The man did solemnly protest unto us, saying, You shall not see my face, except your brother be with you. If thou wilt send our brother with us, Judah says here to his dad, We will go down and buy the food. But if thou wilt not send him, we will not go down. For the man said unto us, You shall not see my face, except your brother be with you. So Judah was reminding his dad that we can't go back to Egypt unless we bring Benjamin with us. And he already he had already told him that, but for some reason, Jacob just, uh, you know, he was just trying to uh, neglect that. Uh, he was trying to find out a different way to, to send the brothers down to Egypt, but to not have to send Benjamin. And Israel said, verse 6, And Israel said, Wherefore dealt ye so ill with me as to tell the man whether you ha- had yet a brother? In other words, why did you tell the guy you had a brother? Verse 7, they said, the man asked us straightly of our state and of our kindred, saying, is your father yet alive? Have you another brother? And we told him according to the tenor of those words. Could we certainly know that he would say, bring your brother down? In other words, the brothers are saying back to their dad, how in the world would we know that this guy that we met, who is secretly Joseph, they have no idea it's Joseph, how would we know that he would demand that our little brother come back to Egypt with us if we told them that we had a younger brother? So they had no idea. Verse 8, And Judah said unto Israel his father, Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and thou and also our little ones. So this famine was really severe throughout the whole land and throughout the world at this time. They really didn't have a choice. They had to go down to Egypt. If they don't go, they die. So they're, they're in a very hard predicament here. And so they might as well send, uh, they might as well send Benjamin with because he's going to die. They're all going to die anyways. So... But it's interesting what Judah says here. Now check this out. He says, send the lad with me. And he's, 
then he continues on. He says, I will be, verse 9, I will be surety for him of my hand shalt thou require him if I bring him not unto thee and set him before thee, then let me bear the blame forever. Now, this is pretty significant. I mean, Judah is stepping up here. Think about what they had done to Joseph. Nobody was willing to give their life for Joseph to keep the other brothers from betraying him, from wanting, to, at first wanting to kill him, and then lastly, selling him into slavery. Nobody stood the gap and said, nobody's, through my dead body, are you going to take Joseph? Nobody did that. But now Judah is doing that for Benjamin. He's actually, so they've obviously learned something from what they had done long ago, the terrible thing that they had done to Joseph. They obviously feel guilty for it, and now Judah's trying to make it right. So he says, you take my life for his. I guarantee my life that I will get him back. If, if I don't, then, then my life is on the line here. I, his life for my life, in other words. Verse 10, for except we had lingered... Surely now we had returned this second time. So Judah is chastising his dad a little bit here, um, or you're kind of pleading with him, or you know he's saying, "Hey, if if you would have just let us go down a long time ago instead of waiting this period of time before sending Benjamin with us, we would have already been down there and back." But now Jacob's indecisiveness has put a little bit more pressure on them because there's a famine. Uh, a, a severe famine in the land and they're running lower and lower on food. So now they're getting more and more desperate. I guess the lesson you could say there uh, when, after we read that verse is that indecision can cause you to uh, be in a, a harder predicament than, than, or, than you know, in, a, in a worse situation than you are already in. So it's better to make a decision and go with it and deal with the consequences and to sit there forever and linger and linger and linger. Verse 11, And their father Israel said unto them, If it must be so now, do this, take of the best fruits in the land, in the land, in your vessels, and carry down the manna present, a little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh, nuts, and almonds. So it appears as though they did have some food left. They weren't totally unprepared for the future. They had enough left to to go down and give this to uh, to pay for the food that they were going to try to get in Egypt. So they had uh, balm, they had honey, they had spices, myrrh, nuts, and almonds. Probably the last stuff they had, and they probably this was, you know, we got to give everything we have left no doubt, in order to, to survive, in order to live. I mean, this famine was, was that severe. I can't help but think about in the end times we're going to be running into, well, we know that there's the Great Tribulation um, written about in the book of Revelation, Matthew 24, Mark 13, this period where Jesus says even prior to that there would be great famines, pestilences, troubles, so this, this, what we're seeing here with Joseph is a type of really what's going to happen in the end days. There, we are going to eventually run into a period or periods of time where the world condition, uh, where something uh, very uh, rough is going on in the world. You know, we got the scare of the coronavirus today. And 
they are, you know, I think it's a good reminder and we're going to talk about it in the current events message that I'll record separately from this. But I, I think this time they really blew that out of, out of proportion in order to sabotage the economy, make us, make us, you know, the mainstream media blowing it out of proportion to try to make us feel uneasy, unhappy about what's going on during the, during the, the Trump presidency, the Trump years. But it is also a reminder, even though I, I really believe it's, it's blown way out of proportion, it's a reminder that we should always be prepared for hard times. And Joseph here was, was a great example of somebody who was prepared to survive through the Great Famine. Not only was he prepared to survive, not only did he prepare Egypt to make it through the famine, but he also was able to help his family here coming up as well as many people from around the world that came to Egypt for food during the famine. So the lesson, I guess the lesson there is we should always be prepared for, for hard times. And when we see little scares like this, the coronavirus that they hype up, the yeah, no big deal, it's not the real thing. But eventually the real thing will come, and a lot of people will say, oh, they're hyping it up again, they're hyping it up again and I'm not going to prepare, and then there's going to be a lot of panic, widespread panic and, and unrest. Verse 12, And take double money in your, in your hand, and the money that was brought again in the mouth of your sacks, carry it again in your hand. Peradventure, it was an oversight. So if you remember from last chapter, Joseph, he was setting up the brothers so he could accuse them of, of various things such as spying. Um, then he had his servant put money in their sacks after they bought the grain. So the, the Israelites came back, they opened up, they got back to the land of Canaan uh, to see their dad again back home. And they opened up their sacks of grain and there was money still in there, their money that they used to buy the grain. So now they're thinking, oh no, not only is this guy from Egypt, this ruler in Egypt, who they don't, again, they don't know it's Joseph, not only is he going to accuse us of being spies, he's also going to accuse us of being thieves. So that was probably another reason why there was a little hesitation to go back to Egypt. Okay, so... But so the dad comes up with a plan here. He says, take double money, pay for, pay for the, the grain that you came back with the, uh, for the first time. Pay for, pay for that and then bring enough money to buy new grain and also bring this uh, present with, as we're going to see here. So he's, he's trying to display honesty here in Egypt. Verse 13, take also your brother, that would be Benjamin, and arise, go again unto the man. And God, now check this out, verse 14, and God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may send away your other brother and Benjamin. And then he says, if I be bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Now this is an interesting statement by Jacob here. Before he kept saying he was complaining about his life. He was saying one bad thing after another is happening to me. Oh, woe is me. And he didn't, he wasn't putting his faith in God. He was trying to hold on to everything he had. He, he Like Benjamin, for example, he thought if he sent Benjamin, he was going to lose him too. And then he was going to go down to the grave in sorrow and just die. But now he seems to 
turn over a new leaf. Now he mentions God, which he didn't before in the prior chapter. So it seems Jacob, you know, we go through periods in our life like this too, where we stray away from God, where we try to do things on our own. We try to not let God's will come to pass, but our will. And we don't trust that things will work out in the long run. And, and that's, that's where Jacob was at. He did not trust that things would work out in the long run. Even though this, again, remember, this was the guy that saw angels climbing up and down the ladder to heaven. God gave him promises. He, he um, you know, had all kinds of communications with him in the past. But even a guy like that who had this, who was so close to God, still forgot God and forgot to mention him and went into a period of self-doubt, complaining, murmuring, and uh, lack of faith. But now he's turning over a new leaf, as you can see here. So So he says, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Now, that's an interesting statement. That's basically saying, I am going to leave it in God's hands. If I lose my children, God forbid, then I know it's God's plan and things are going to work out in the long run. I'm not going to fret over it. And it's amazing when you, when you do that at times in your life, when you're trying so hard to preserve something for yourself or you're trying to do things your way and it, it seems like things just are not working out for you. And then when you just say, okay, I'm going to, leave, I'm going to, put, I'm going to put all this stuff in God's hands. And then all of a sudden... You know, usually what happens, unless God needs to put you through some other tests, things miraculously start going well. If you just give him that burden, you take your burden and you say, I'm going to trust you to handle it. I'm just going to do what I can do to to continue doing uh, the things that I can handle. Instead of trying to handle all the big things that you can't possibly control, we've got a God that can control those things. And, you know, a lot of people get so stressed out in life. We all do it. You, get, you allow yourself to get so stressed out about so many different things when we could be virtually stress-free if we just put our trust in God. Let Him handle the unforeseen things, the things that we worry about that we can't control. So he says, if I'm bereaved, I am bereaved. I'm, I'm going to be settled with it. It's a done deal. Let's go do this. Verse 15. And the men took that present, and they took double money in their hand, and, and Benjamin, the youngest brother, and rose up and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. Verse 16. And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the ruler of his house, Bring these men home and slay and make ready, for these men shall dine with me at noon. So this is, this is kind of a strange thing to happen. A ruler of Egypt all of a sudden wanting to dine with some strangers, especially some strangers that he had accused of being spies. Check this out. Verse 17, And the man did as Joseph bade, and the man brought the men into Joseph's house. So he wants to have a dinner with his, with his brothers. Again, his brothers have no idea who he is. They just think that Joseph is this hard Egyptian ruler that's accusing them of things. And they're, kind, they're just terrified dealing with Joseph at this time. And, and back to the title, I might as well mention this to kind of keep the theme going here. They were Joseph's strategy here. You're going to see everything he does is in an effort 
to pry into their brother's conscience. You know, he could have just said, hey guys, the first time you saw him, I'm Joseph, remember me? But he didn't. He purposely uh, kept his identity secret and started asking them questions, putting them through these trials and temptations in hopes that they, in their mind, they would start feeling guilty for what they had done to him without him having to show who he was. It's a beautiful thing. There's a beautiful type in this that we're going to tie in a little bit later with, uh, with how, it, how, it, uh, how this chapter relates to us and every Christian today. Verse 18, And the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house. And they said, Because of the money that was returned in our sacks at the first time are we brought in in that he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us and take us for bondmen and our asses. Okay, so they thought that since Joseph, who again, whom they, have, whom they don't know is Joseph, they thought this Egyptian ruler was now going to kill them or capture them and make them slaves as well and take everything that they have because they feared that now that uh, he's going to realize that or he's going to believe that they stole the money which Joseph secretly had put back in their sacks in the first place. Um, I guess one thing I I could mention here, sin, sin naturally brings fear. I think we talked about that a little bit last time. And fear brings torment. It torments your mind. It torments your soul. And this is, a, this is just what happens. That's why they're so fearful. That when you're guilty, you're always looking over your shoulder thinking, uh, you know, somebody's going to catch me. Uh, I, you know. But if your conscience is clear and you've repented of all your sins, you've equaled everything with everybody, you've got nothing to worry about. You just, you just keep going. But they're afraid because they're hiding that sin still. Verse 19, And they came near to the steward of Joseph's house, and they communed with him at the door of the house, and said, O sir, we came indeed down at the first time to buy food. And it came to pass, now they're explaining their story here, And it came to pass when we came to the inn that we opened our sacks, and behold, Every man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight, and we have brought it again in our hand. So they explained to Joseph's servant here, they said, hey, you know, we bought this grain with this money. We came back, we went to the inn, we opened up our sacks to check on the grain, and our money was just in there. We don't know how it got there. So they're obviously telling him this because they're afraid, like the last verse said, that they were going to that Joseph was going to fall upon them and kill them or make them slaves. Verse 22, and other money we have brought down in our hands to buy food. We cannot tell who put our money in our sacks. So they're claiming innocence. I don't know how the money got in there, but here's that money and more money to buy future grain. Verse 23. And the, and, the, and the Joseph's servant, this is what he says. And he said, Peace be to you. Fear not, your God and the God of your father hath given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money, and he brought Simeon out unto them. Remember, they were holding on to Simeon. They were actually, it's interesting, Jacob was actually 
willing to, it seemed he was willing just to let Simeon go. They weren't going to go back to Egypt to get him, but the famine continued on and they were forced to go back there. So it worked out good for Simeon. Otherwise, he would have been left there uh, for dead, even though he wouldn't have been because Joseph was there. But so it's interesting. This this servant of Joseph's mentions or, or he gives credit to God. He says, fear not your God and the God of your father hath given you treasure in your sacks. In other words, this, this guy is crediting God for the blessings that they received in their sacks. And, and it's kind of, it's kind of, um, it seems kind of strange because the Egyptians, we know, were pagans. They worshiped false gods and things like that. But I have no doubt that being, being that this servant was so close to Joseph, that this man could have actually been a true believer in the one and only true God. I mean, you work with a guy like Joseph, I mean, the success Joseph had in Egypt, the everything that God had blessed him with, no doubt his light shined upon all the people that he was around and actually influenced them in one way or the other to become believers. I have no doubt. Verse 24, And the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water, and they washed their feet and gave their asses provender. And they made ready the present against Joseph, uh, against Joseph came at noon, and they made ready the present against Joseph came at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand into the house, and now check this out, and bowed themselves to him to the earth. Now you remember back several chapters ago, or I um, can't remember how many chapters, it might be like five chapters by now. But do you remember back when Joseph told his brothers the dream before they betrayed him? He said, hey, I had this dream and the sun and the moon and the, and the 11 stars, 10 or 11 stars, I can't remember which now, bowed down unto my star. I think it was my star. And then he told them the other dream where he said there, uh, there were 10, I can't remember if it was 10 or 11, but 10 or 11 sheaves around in a circle, and my sheaf was standing upright, this bundle of grain, and yours bowed down to mine. And so that infuriated his brothers, the fact that Joseph was proclaiming that one day he was going to be their ruler, and they'd be bowing down before him. So they tried to stop that from happening, and their efforts to stop that from happening actually made his dream come true. Had they not betrayed him and sold him into Egypt, they wouldn't be here right now, desperately starving, bowing down before Joseph, trying not only starving uh, for food, but also pleading for their lives. Amazing how this worked out. And this, this really shows that God's we should, we, we should never doubt God's plan. There are so many things written in the Bible that are coming to pass right now as, as we talk, things that are going to come to pass in the future, and they're always going to happen exactly as he foretold them. Now, it had been 20 years. You know, this, uh, there are prophecies written in the Bible that, have, you know, that took place hundreds of years, sometimes thousands of years after they're given. Uh, in Joseph's case, it was only 20, but it's a long time for him, 20 years, that he had to suffer and be a slave and, and be put through. I mean, we talked about it before. I mean, after Joseph was given that dream, 
about being the ruler over his brothers, ruler of his family, uh, he got the first thing that happened was he got he he almost got killed and then he got sold into slavery and he went through trials and tribulations for twenty years. At no time did Joseph ever doubt, at least not recorded in the Bible, that God's promises would come to pass. So right now he's got to be thinking, this is amazing. God's words come. There's my brothers right there, and they're actually doing what was foretold in my dream. But this is not only is this going to give. This isn't like oh Joseph is sitting there thinking, well I'm so powerful, they're bowing down before me. But it's also going to um, humble Joseph and give him a greater appreciation for the hand of God in orchestrating all of these events. Because he's got to be sitting there thinking, I just cannot believe how everything that I went through, everything they did to me, led to, you know, led to this, and it was all part of God's plan. It's also going to help Joseph be a little bit more forgiving to his brothers because he's going to understand them betraying him even actually was part of God's plan, which is, which is strange. You know, God's ways, uh, there's a scripture in the book of Isaiah that says God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. He got the, really, the end game is, is God is trying to... When you look at the bottom of everything that God does, He's trying to search out our hearts. He's trying to, trying to form our hearts, mold our hearts, and test our hearts to see how our hearts are doing. Are they hard and callous? Are they covered over with... Uh, are they uncircumcised hearts? Or are they hearts of flesh that uh, are sensitive to God's plan, sensitive to... Uh, his ways and, and, and being compassionate towards others, being compassionate to the lost, uh, forgiving people, not holding grudges. Because Joseph here was also being put through the test because he could have said, you know, forget you brothers. I'm going to kill every single one of you if he, if he was that kind of guy that held grudges against people. So Joseph did not hold a grudge here. There was no grudge whatsoever. Um, but everything we go through life, everything in the Bible, it, it basically boils down to a God. I'm going to say it again. God is, every action he takes, he's forming and molding people's hearts. Some, and that doesn't mean everybody's going to make it. Some are going to go through a test uh, and they're going to fail that test. We read about it in the last chapters of the book of Revelation that Satan, after he is bound in the pit for a thousand years during the millennium, that he'll be loosed one last time to deceive the nations of the world. And it actually says there that great multitudes as of the sands of the sea will follow Satan at his final rebellion and be, and be um, uh, experience the second death with him. So... This isn't a test. This isn't like everybody's eventually going to be saved at some point. No. Uh, we read about these stories here where, yeah, it, it, there is a good outcome. But there's also, we're warned about it over and over by Jesus Christ himself and in the book of Revelation, that many people will choose the path of destruction. Um, and it's because God never did get in and pry open their hearts to get them to a, a point of repentance. It just didn't happen. It, it just I don't, I don't understand it. I don't know how somebody could go through life because every opportunity, I believe, will be there. There are points in our life where God brings us to that point. He puts the pressure on. He pries, tries to pry open your eyes and say, look at what you've done. 
Look at what you've done. And if you say, I'm not going to do anything about it, that's very dangerous. That's very dangerous. Um, because there, I, I don't know how many chances God gives us. I'm sure he probably gives us a few chances. And then you look back and you say, why didn't I do the right thing after that? Why not? And then, you know, whatever. But eventually you, the, the chances are gone. Okay, so here we go. Verse 27. And he asked them of their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spake? Is he yet alive? Um, interesting here. So I'm not going to ramble on too long about this, but I got another point here to make. Um, and it's a pretty significant one. But we see here part of Joseph's strategy, his strategy is working. He not only wanted to find out a way to get his brothers to keep coming back, to have contact with them and hope that they could reunite and they'd repent, but he also wanted to figure out if his dad was still alive and he wanted to see his dad again, obviously. Um, but he couldn't, if, if he would have just showed himself, it would have shortcut this whole process of his brothers being able to come to repentance naturally rather than a fake repentance. Because if Joseph would have revealed himself, his brothers obviously, what's the first thing? Oh, we're so sorry. But he wants them to actually really be sorry before he reveals himself. And that's what this is all leading up to. But here's the lesson. Um, you know, his brothers are there. I mean, think about this. This guy's asking them about their dad, and they have no idea that this is their long-lost brother, Joseph, asking about, that's his dad, too. They have no idea. And so he, he continues to conceal himself. But what, how does this tie into the New Testament? Or what's the lesson here? Well, you look at Jesus. He conceals himself from people even to this day. Uh, during a period, you know, so Joseph, I'm, I'm going to word it this way. Joseph is in the process of calling his brothers to repentance. He's trying to pry into their, their conscience, trying to open it up before he's going to reveal himself. Jesus does the same thing. He doesn't reveal his full character, who he is, until that person answers the call. There are many scriptures in the Bible that talk about, um, you know, uh, let me see here. Uh, Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord, not as the Lord our God shall call. Now God calls many people, but not everybody answers the call. Joseph was calling his brothers, trying to pry into their conscience, trying to get them to repent. And we're going to find out if they answer that call or not here pretty soon. Maybe not today, but soon. Um, so we see here there, there's, a, there's such an interesting parallel between everything that Joseph did and what Jesus does. Jesus, again, hides himself from people until they repent and cry out to him. Then he pours himself, he opens himself up to them. He pours out his spirit into, into, into them. He starts, you know, uh, like I said, all throughout the Bible, you start reading the Bible, you can get a bigger picture of Jesus more and more every day. But until you reach that point, until you reach the point of repentance and realizing what you've done, you will never see Jesus for who he is. And he purposely hides it that way. He purposely does it. Um, 
fascinating parallel here. All right, I could go on and on about that, but I, I don't want to spend too much time there. Um, actually, I, I, don't, I thought I was going to talk about it a little bit later, but in case I forget, remember the time when the disciples were walking with Jesus after he had been crucified? And he was, uh, Jesus disguised himself. He hid himself. So they, they, they could not, um, they didn't know it was him. And then he started teaching, he started talking about the scriptures related to the, the death and resurrection of the Messiah. And then all of a sudden he opened their eyes and they could see him for who he was. But I'm just tying that in because Joseph was hiding himself. There were times when Jesus hid himself and did not reveal himself until the right time. And they answered, verse 28, And they answered, Thy servant, our father, is in good health. He is yet alive. And they bowed down their heads and made obeisance. And he, and he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom you spake unto me? And he said, God be gracious unto thee, my son. Now, I think I had mentioned before that Joseph had never met Benjamin. I think I might have met, mentioned that. But as I was doing some more research, it appears as though he may have seen Benjamin long ago when Benjamin was just a little little baby, a little toddler. So you could imagine this brother that he's seeing here is the only brother that didn't betray him. So you can imagine how emotional, I mean, uh, Joseph is going to get here. And Joseph made haste for his bowels did yearn upon his brother and he sought where to weep. And he entered into his chamber and wept there. So he couldn't, he had, right when he saw Benjamin and realized that was Benjamin, he couldn't control his emotions anymore. He got into a private, he didn't, he couldn't show his emotions in front of his brothers without ruining the plan uh, to get them to repent. So, but, he, but he found a chamber and, and, and let his emotions pour out there. Okay, so, th- you know, this would take a lot of patience. You think about this. I mean, Joseph was a very disciplined man. He's carrying, he's got a plan and he's carrying it out. I mean, he hadn't seen his brother for that long and uh, most people would just want to just burst out right there in front of everybody and and, uh, say, okay, I'm Joseph, I love you. But he still has the patience to follow through with with the test that he's bringing his brothers through for their benefit. Verse 31, and he washed his face and went out and reframed himself and said, set on bread. Now, I'm going to say this. I I know I keep tying Joseph into Jesus, but think about how Joseph is treating his brothers. Now, put yourself in Joseph. He's one of Joseph's brothers. And now you can get a better understanding on how patient Jesus is with us to get us to a state of repentance, how gracious he is, how kind he is, and, and, and so forth. It's amazing. Verse thirty-two, and he and he set on for him, uh, and and they set on for him by himself, and them for themselves, and for the Egyptians which did eat with him by themselves, because the Egyptians might not eat bread with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination unto the Egyptians. Now this is very interesting statement because you know back then these the Egyptians believed in. Uh, racial purity and segregation. They believed they were descendants of, of the gods. And anybody else that came in, they were not part, they didn't have that royal blood from the gods, so to speak. Which, you know, is, we know is untrue. It's kind of silly, right? But 
there was a reason God brought the Israelites down to Egypt. Um, think about this. Because this place was so, they practiced segregation and they wanted to be so separate, this provided the perfect womb for the nation of Israel to grow and be uncontaminated by the heathens of the other lands. You know, the Israelites went down with just 70 souls. If you remember from the book of, uh, well, we'll get there at some point, but the book of Exodus, the Israelites go down with just 70 souls. That's the beginning here right now. We're going to find out the Israelites come and live live in Egypt with, um, with Joseph. But God's going to keep them there for hundreds of years, 400 years, in a land where they will not, again, will the, where they practice segregation. The Egyptians didn't want anything to do with them. They would respect them. Uh, they, they, lo- they, they respected Joseph so much that they were going to leave them be and let them grow and prosper. But they didn't want to intermingle with them. So this, again, this kept, so this allowed those 70 souls to go from 70 to millions of people in 400 years, uncontaminated from other heathens that lived around them. So God naturally, so people think, why did God bring the Israelites? Why did he say they would have to go into slavery for 400 years and then come on out? Well, because he was growing them as a nation. It was a way to, to kind of coddle them and protect them and say, okay, you're going you're gonna to grow as a nation. I'm going to keep you together. You're going to be one good family coming out of here. But if they would have just stayed in Canaan and God's, they would have been going, following their gods every single, uh, you know, we, we find out what happens when they do get into the land of Canaan. They end up following the Canaanites' gods. But since the Egyptians didn't want anything to do with them that way, they were, they were uncontaminated, uh, racially speaking there. Verse 33, And they set before him the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth, and the men marveled at one another. So they're wondering, how in the world does this Egyptian guy know the order of our birth. How would anybody know that? So this has just got to be, I mean, there, he's, Joseph is just prying in deep. He's doing everything he can to bring them to remembrance and to repentance of what they had done to him. Verse 34, And he took and sent messes unto them from before him, but Benjamin's mess was five, not yourself, was five times so much as any of theirs, and they drank and were merry with him. Now, why in the world would Joseph give Benjamin five times as much food than his brothers? Well, Benjamin here is the youngest son. Joseph was the youngest son before they had betrayed him. And he's testing them to see if they're still going to... Because remember, the brothers got all jealous against Joseph when Joseph had this dream that he was going to be the, the ruler over them. Now he's testing them to say, hey, are they still going to be jealous of their younger brother? I'm going to give him five times as much food and see how they react to that. So they're going through another test. Now, what does that have to do with us? Does God sometimes test us to see if we're going to be jealous of other people or envious uh, and not just say, I'm satisfied with what he's given me and I'm happy with that. God will put us through these tests. Every test that the brothers are going through, now uh, don't forget this, every test that these brothers are going through in these chapters are tests that we go through daily. We go through daily. And God is there orchestrating them. He's watching us. He's observing. And he's either celebrating or he's 
you know, running out of patience, okay? Um, so, th there's also another interesting thing here. Five in biblical numerics is the number of grace. So, we see there's a lot of grace here being extended by Joseph. Oh, that's the last verse. So, so just in conclusion here, God throughout this whole chapter, was trying to pry into the consciences of Joseph's brothers through Joseph. He was using Joseph as that tool to do so. Um, and like I, said, like I said, he's doing that. He does the same thing to us. And uh, the end goal is to form our hearts, to get us to a state of repentance uh, so that he can reveal himself to us and then we could grow together from there with him uh, through the aid of the Holy Spirit. Um, but I, I do want to read this verse. I, I mentioned before that not all will answer the call. You know, not all, not all will answer the call. Now, all of Joseph's brothers may answer the call. We'll see here. But in reality, when it comes down to the real life, not everybody will make it to heaven. Paul says to Timothy that the Spirit... In quotes here, from 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 2, the Spirit speaketh expresses expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits, the doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, and now check this out, this is why I came here, and having their conscience seared with a hot iron. So think about that. Their conscience seared with a hot iron. Some people just will not, what, what Paul's saying here is in the last times especially, some people will just not open their heart. They will not come to that point of repentance. They will be stubborn. They will resist. It's, it's just like a, um, a, you know, a hot iron on, I'm trying to think of what he was, like a hot iron searing a piece of clothing or something, just searing it in. You know, it's that rough and callous and you can't get in, you, know, you just can't get into it. Um, and, and the lesson for us is we do not want to be, uh, we do not want to let our conscience be seared. We, wanna, we want to acknowledge um, our sins, repent, and enjoy the glory of the Lord in our lives and His mercy. Anyways, uh, we'll open up with, or we'll not open up, we'll close up with questions and comments. Anybody got anything? <coughs> I just think it's like, never put two and two together that this is the beginning of the Israelites' uh, captivity, basically, which ultimately turns into the, the parting of the seas and the big uh, exodus uh, from Israel. I didn't really put two and two together, so that's kind of when you find uh, little things that make sense, you know, and then, uh, just the Bible kind of putting itself together and uh, just, again, more faith building and and also to see the parallels of, of how we can parallel this story, which seems like a story that's, a, I mean, it's a true story, but it doesn't, you know, it's, it's just interesting when you, got, when you can pull biblical things and apply it to your life, even though it's not talking about your life directly. I mean, it's just, again, more faith building of how God's amazing ability to have layers of the Bible that, you know, there's this, this layer of the story, and there's a layer of you know, the parallels to Jesus, and then there's another layer of how it applies to our lives directly. Yeah. And uh, so I, I just always love uh, those types of right. I mean, discoveries. It's, it's, it makes it so much more rich because you read the New Testament verses, everybody knows that Jesus expects us to repent and all that, but when you actually see 
uh, you know, you can look at Joseph and how he, uh, how he was calling his brothers to repentance. It actually gives you a picture of how God does it, how God's actually doing that to people. Where you don't get that in the New Testament, you know, word for word. It's, the statements are there, but not the details. And that's where a, a lot of people are the New Testament type Christians. And they only read the New Testament. They're missing out on some of the richest parts of the gospel hidden in the Old Testament. Now, I heard a, a, a Bible teacher one time say, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, whereas the New Testament is, is what actually reveals uh, the, uh, what, what the Old Testament was all about. Right. It was, it's basically the key that unlocks. So when Jesus came here, he basically unlocked... Every, I mean, like you're saying, it's not Joseph's history is an emotional story, huge emotional story, but it actually is much more than that. If if people knew and actually studied. Yeah, and also there's a lot of people that just think, and I used to kind of be that way, where the New Testament is all that really matters because that's what we're into today and everything. But but knowing that you know the Old Testament is kind of a kind of a hidden backstory, you know. That's, right. Just shows that it's just as important, and I also love that it shows this particular story shows God's patience, right? Uh, you know, because this whole time of them going back and forth and discussing this, and then he's having a man, you know, and most, most people, if your brother tried to kill you uh, and leave you and suffer and then sell you to slavery, would have would be like no patience, you know, right? Like first, first chance you. You think you'd want to kill him or torture him or put him in prison, or but uh, he's patient with them. He loves them. He, yeah. You know, I mean, obviously, we'll learn more in the next chapter. But uh. yeah, and it, um, it, you know, we often think of Jesus. I don't know. Maybe I speak for myself. You, you think of him as not being very emotional about the process of calling somebody to repentance. You just think he's standing there, he's just waiting. You know, if you don't do it, you don't do it. Type of thing, but uh, but you can see how involved he he is in trying to get people to come to repentance, and and the emotional, you know, like Joseph having to leave the room even because right. his emotions were getting. So I mean, people don't think of God as being that emotional, but he is, and uh, it makes it more real. It makes this it makes this whole life that we are in. I mean, this story of Joseph is just it's the most dramatic story ever ever told that that's ever happened but it but when we tie it into our lives it makes everything that we're experiencing now part of that dramatic story absolutely it continues on it's not something that was way back then you know in the old times um any other questions or comments yeah i think it's cool just the correlation like what you were saying even the torment that joseph went through it kind of aligns with you know, Christ and the torment that he went through mm-hmm. dying on the cross and now, like you're saying, you know, wanting the for, or the repentance and stuff. And I guess as a gal, the emotional part isn't hard for me to understand. You know, I just think of our own emotions towards our own children and then I can get it like that's what he must be feeling just on a higher level. You know, when you see your kids goof up or whatever and you just want them to come to you and say they're sorry and really try to do better. You know, I can see the Heavenly Father looking down at me that way, just wanting that, you know. Mm-hmm. Good point. I get it. 
Christian Overcomers is brought to you by the tithes and offerings of our listeners. If you would like to support our ministry, please go to ChristianOvercomers.com. God bless you, and thank you for your support. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He is loose the faithful lightning of his terrible sword. His truth is 